0: Well, again, welcome to worship this morning. It is, it is good to be in the house of the Lord together. A while ago, the mother of a friend of mine passed away. She professed faith in Jesus Christ as her personal favor, a Savior, but, but the faith that she professed was not readily apparent in her life. She lived a hard life. She'd been mistreated by the men she had given her heart to, She'd been neglected and abused. She had two kids who adored her, but she struggled to be the mother to them that she knew that she should be, the mother that she wanted to be. She fell into depression and some bad habits. Soon she was abusing drugs and other vices. She professed faith, but her faith was not evident in her life. She passed suddenly. My friend sat and mourned her passing with his stepfather. The stepfather turned and, tears running down his face, asked my friend, Does God show mercy? Does God show mercy? In that question, there is an acknowledgment that this woman that both men loved so much had not lived a life that was worthy of the faith that she professed should not been the type of Christian that we are expected to be. We know that God has given us laws, laws that are for our own benefit, laws that benefit our neighbor and ourselves, laws that are designed to protect us, to, to keep us safe and to glorify God, and laws that we are so very good at breaking. Does God show mercy when we break the laws we know we are supposed to keep? Mercy. We talk a lot about grace at Calvary, about getting what we do not deserve. We talk about how God has poured out his love on us. He has poured out his grace on us, how he has sent Jesus to die for our sins, which is something that we totally did not earn and, and could never be worthy of. This is grace. This is getting what we do not deserve. But we haven't spent as much time talking about mercy. If grace is getting what we do not deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. If I get pulled over for speeding and the police officer decides to give me a warning instead of a ticket, then that officer has shown me mercy. I deserved the ticket. I did the wrong. There's no denying it, but instead of getting the fine and the mark on my record that I deserved, I got a warning. I was shown mercy. Does God show mercy? As we ponder that question, we'll be moving into our text for this morning, picking up with the story of Joseph. There's famine in all the known world. Jacob, Joseph's father, sent ten of his sons to Egypt to buy grain that their family might not starve. There, they, though they do not recognize him, the brothers run into Joseph, their lost brother the, brother, the brother that they abandoned, the brother they betrayed, the brother they sold into slavery. Joseph throws them in jail. But after three days, releases them so that they can go home and feed their starving families. Now, nine of the brothers are sent back to their family, to their father Jacob, laden with, with grain for all of them to eat, while one brother, Simeon, is still being held in Egypt. They've been told that Simeon will not be released, and they will not be welcome in Egypt, the only place that has any food anywhere around them, if they do not bring with them their youngest brother, Benjamin the next time that they come to visit. When they arrive home, they find that the silver that they use to pay for the grain in Egypt has been put back in their sacks. They don't understand it, and, and it makes them nervous. Will they be thought of as thieves the next time that they go to buy food? Well, that's a secondary issue. The more pressing problem is that they can't go back without Benjamin. Jacob is nervous that something will happen to Benjamin, and so he is loath to let him go. The reality is harsh, and the reality is that if they do not get more food, they will all starve. And it is Judah who brings this to his attention. Go back to Egypt and get us some more food, Jacob tells his son. But the man warned us that we will not receive any food unless Benjamin is with us, Judah replies. So if you send Benjamin with us, we're going to go. But if you continue to refuse to send him, if you continue to play favorites, if you continue to try to protect this this child that we all know you love more than you love us, then we aren't going anywhere. And we'll all just starve here in the land of Canaan. Jacob gets frustrated, asking, Well, why did you tell that man that you had a brother? And the brothers respond by saying, The man asked us strangely specific questions. He asked us how our father's doing. He asked us if we had another brother. We were simply answering his questions. How are we to know that he would want us to bring Benjamin to him? Again, it is Judah who steps forward and says, Dad, send Benjamin with us. If he doesn't come back, you can put both of my sons to death. I will do everything I can to keep him safe. But man, we need this food. If you hadn't been dragging your feet for so long with this particular problem, this particular situation, we could have been to Egypt and back two times already. The food's running out. We'll starve if you don't send him with us. And Jacob, knowing that Judah and the rest of the brothers were right, relented. He sent them to Egypt with gifts for the man. He sent them with almonds and pistachios. He made sure that they had the silver with them that had been placed in their sacks so that they wouldn't be thought of as thieves. And he sent with them Benjamin. And so the brothers returned to Egypt to face the man, to face Joseph. And that's where we pick up with the story this morning in Genesis chapter 43, verses 15 to 34. We read the word of the Lord. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the end of the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men to Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted. And drank freely with him. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Man, I can't imagine what it was like to be one of those brothers, heading back to Egypt and having no real idea of what to expect. They show up, and, and what happens? They receive an invitation to the house of the man who locked them up for three days and is basically holding one of their brother's ransom. It's, it sounds like the beginning of a horror story. Our texts tell us that, that they were frightened, but that they didn't know what the plan is. And it's not like this is an invitation that they could turn down, right? Joseph might as well be the godfather, making these men an offer that they cannot refuse. And so they show up at the house. Nervous and afraid. They haven't forgotten their last visit. They haven't forgotten the the dark damp of the dungeon. And they certainly haven't done anything to remedy the guilt that came to the surface there. The guilt that has haunted them. The guilt that resulted from selling their brother into slavery. And they know that they do not belong in this house. They know that they don't fit in here. The Egyptians aren't even supposed to eat with them. Being brought here has to be bad news, right? Right? This must be something bad. This, this can't possibly be something good. And guilt calls to guilt, doesn't it? The brothers feel guilty for, for what they did to their young brother Joseph, but nobody knows about that. That's the best kept secret in the family. And yet the guilt calls to other guilt. This strange man and his strange questions, they must, he must know something that they've done wrong. It's not the betrayal of their younger brother, so it must be something else. They must be guilty of something else. And their minds go back to the extra silver that was put in their bags. That's got to be it, they decide. This dude totally thinks that we stole the silver, and now he's going to take us into custody again. He's going to arrest us, and then the brothers take it even farther and wonder if Joseph is going to make them be slaves and then even take their donkeys it is amazing what guilt does to us, isn't it? It's amazing what knowing we deserve punishment that we just haven't received yet does to our psyche, does to our brains. These guys thought that the second most powerful person in the world was going to care about their donkeys. That's ridiculous. That's totally crazy. And yet when you are guilt-ridden... When you are fearful and nervous, it's amazing what we can convince ourselves of. Ever been there? Ever been there? I mean, look at these guys. It's totally relatable. We, we know our sin. We know that we're not perfect people. We know that we struggle and fail. We're human. And until Christ comes again and the whole world, including us, is made new, being sinful is going to be a part of who we are. And we feel bad about it, right? Like, we regret that. We don't like that. And so, so we cover it up, especially the deep sins, especially the sins that we don't want anyone else to know about, the sins that embarrass us the most. And so as we deal with the guilt of our deep sins, we try to lessen our load by taking care of the guilt of the lesser sins, like the brothers in our story this morning. They get to Joseph's house, and they march right up to Joseph's right-hand man, his steward, and they say, Hey, we know why we're here, man. The silver that we used to pay for the grain during our last visit was found in our bags when we got home. We didn't steal it, dude. Like, in fact, look, we brought it back. Please, take it. Don't punish us. We truly didn't mean to do anything wrong. It was a mistake. It was an accident. And the steward smiled at them and said, Listen, guys, that silver you found in your bags, that's a gift from God, the God of your father. I received your silver, I took your payment. That silver you found must have been God blessing you. Now there are a number of shocking elements to this man's response, and the brothers must have been floored. First, they were not called here to account for their guilt. And this is further emphasized when Joseph appears, and heaps blessing upon blessing on them. He, he piles their plates high with food, and they feast and celebrate together. No, there was not some hidden punishment waiting for them when they entered the house of Joseph, entered the house of the man. And what should should have really started ringing bells for these guys is when an Egyptian referenced the God of their father Jacob. Israel isn't a nation yet. Abraham is their great-grandfather. It's not like the God of the Hebrews is some well-known being at this point in time. And the Egyptians have a ton of gods. And yet here is an Egyptian man referencing the God of their fathers. Still blissfully ignorant, they enter the house and they sit at the table. And Simeon is brought out before them, freed from the dungeon and takes a place at the table. And it's not like this is a choose-your-chair type of gathering. This is assigned seating. And the brothers look at each other in awe as they realize that their host has seated them according to their age, according to their birth order. And they wide-eyed, and and then wide-eyed, they exchange astonishment over this phenomenon. But it is soon forgotten when their eyes get even bigger as their plates are piled high with food. Remember, these men were starving. They came to Egypt to buy food because they had no food. They'd been rationing super hard just to make this grain go as far as it could. And here their plates are piled with, with more food than they could possibly eat. So what happened? Why the big difference between the reception on their two trips to Egypt? Last time they came to Egypt, they were thrown in a prison cell, locked up for three days. And this time they come to Egypt and they're treated like honored guests sitting around a table with a man that has more knowledge about them than they realized and are being blessed beyond what they have earned or deserve. Why? Because this time... They came with Benjamin. They are not the ones that had earned this treatment. Their pasts were just as messy and sinful as they had been on the first visit. There wasn't anything physically different with the brothers. They were still the same sinners they had been on their first trip to Egypt. But this time, they came with Benjamin. And the blessings that were poured out over Benjamin were given to them as well. Their host's love for Benjamin, Joseph's love for Benjamin, overflowed from him to the brothers. And so they were covered by the blessings poured out on Benjamin. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. Maybe you can see where the text is taking us. For we are the brothers, aren't we? We are the ones who are sinful and unclean, who have a guilty past that that haunts us and makes us jump at shadows, constantly worried that the punishment that we deserve is coming and we are so desperate to avoid it, if only we knew how. And then, like the brothers received an invitation, a call to come to the house of Joseph, to the house of the one who could bring untold judgment upon their heads, we are called to come to God. And that's scary, man. Because if anyone knows what we've done, it's him, right? And this guy can bring judgment like no other. Whether it's entering the doors of a church for the first time or popping open that Bible or talking to a pastor or a Christian friend or whatever it is, there is a fear of God because we know that God can truly bring the hammer. And then we get into the house, we open the door, when we respond to the call, we realize that God knows us way better than we anticipated that he did. He's got us seated by birth order. He knows things that there should be no way he could possibly know. And man, that's exciting, but it's also terrifying. Because he knows all that I've done. The brothers didn't even realize at this point that Joseph knew the deep, dark secret that they were hiding. That he was the one who was hurt most by the secret. In the same way, God knows all that we've done. He knows the deep, dark secret that you, that I, that we are hiding. And he is the one who has been hurt most by that secret, by that sin. If anyone has the right to demand justice from the brothers, it is Joseph. And if anyone has right to demand justice from us, it is God. They deserve it. We, we deserve it. And yet, how does Joseph treat the brothers? He pours out blessing over them. And how does God treat us? He pours out blessings over us. Why? Why? Because in this portion of the story of Joseph, Benjamin is the Christ figure. The brothers are receiving blessings not because of what they have done, but because of who is with them. Joseph's love for his younger brother overflows and results in blessing for those who have done nothing to earn it. The justice that the brothers deserve is not brought upon them. For instead of justice, they are given mercy. And it is the same for us. Jesus Christ is the true Christ figure. He is the son of God. And man, God loves him so much. And yet in spite of that crazy deep love that God has for Jesus, he sent Jesus to earth. He sent his beloved son to become a man. You see, the earth, the people on it were us uh, were so messed up that, that we couldn't be in relationship with God. And so God sent Jesus to remedy that situation. He sent Jesus to live with us, to spend time with us, to teach us more about God, to give us instruction on how God desires us to live. And Jesus came and he lived and he suffered with us and he struggled alongside us. Jesus was tempted like we are, but he never experienced the guilt that we experienced because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never once screwed up. He never once slipped up. He was perfect. And then one horribly beautiful day, Jesus, the perfect one, the one whose sin never touched, became sin for the rest of us. He marched up a hill with a wooden cross on his shoulders, and at the top of that hill, on the hill of Calvary, Jesus was nailed to that cross, and on that cross, he became sin for us. On that cross, he took all the sin and all the guilt and all the shame for all the things that we would ever do. All the sin from the past, present, and future was put on Jesus Christ on the cross, and there he died for it. There he paid for it. He paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. He paid for the sin of your neighbor. He paid for the sin, that, all the sin that you have done, the sin that has been done against you. His perfection paid for all of it, and there he became our sin because of our sin, was abandoned by God. God abandoned this one that he loved so much. Because of us. And there Jesus died. But he didn't stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, defeating the grave and reconciling us to God. So that when we believe in Jesus, when we are baptized, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, when we accept that we are sinners, but that Jesus has paid the debt of our sin, that he's the only one who can, we are brought back into relationship with God. The Bible tells us that through faith we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus gives us his righteousness, so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful rags. For those who have been taken away by Christ, and instead he sees the righteousness of his Son. For through Christ, we are forgiven. Through Christ, we are brought into the family of God, and through Christ, he calls us sons and daughters. Like the brothers at the table being blessed because Benjamin was with them, so we are blessed because Christ is with us. We don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. What we deserve is justice. Our sins have hurt God so deeply. They have wounded him. They have betrayed him. And we deserve to be punished for them. But instead of justice, we have been given mercy. For the sake of Christ, we have been given mercy. Does God show mercy? He does. He does. Though my friend's mother did not live a life that many of us would consider Christian, She professed faith in Jesus Christ, and so she was shown mercy. I do not know what inner struggles you fight. I do not know the deep sins that haunt you or the guilt and the shame that you bear. But what I do know is this you do not deserve mercy. Neither do I. I'm a broken, messed up sinner. I can't earn my way into God's graces. I can't redeem myself. I am guilty of my sin. I do not deserve mercy. And yet, because of my faith in Jesus, mercy has been given to me. And because of your faith in Jesus, mercy has been given to you. If you do not yet profess faith in Christ, know that I, that we, the church, we are praying for you. Know that God is relentlessly pursuing you, for he loves you deeply. He sent Christ to die for you. He longs that you would be part of his family, that he would be reconciled with you. But this can only happen through belief in Jesus Christ. And without faith in Christ, there is no hope, for outside of Christ, there is no mercy from God. Church, pray for your neighbor. Proclaim to them the love that God has for them. Tell them the story of Jesus. For God loves the whole world. And it is is his deepest desire to pour out over each and every one of them, each and every one of us, his mercy. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God that we serve. Amen.